Nehemiah chapter 2, and we read in verse 11. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days, and then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. So I know we kind of picked it up in the middle of the story. Uh, Some of you guys have been here uh, as we've been going through Nehemiah. But it's kind of cool, you know, as the Lord's calling his people back to him. You know, God raises up individuals like Ezra or Esther or Nehemiah that would be instrumental in that. You know, I would venture to say that there are some of you here today that in all reality you need to come back to the Lord. You know, you, you might be here and you might be thinking, well, that's, isn't that, you know, mean anything? And yeah, I think you do get like 10 points for a midweek service, you know, but, but even so, you know, you have to examine your own life and you have to ask yourself, am I, am I right with God? Um, do I need to come back? Is there anything that needs to change? And the, the beautiful thing about it is that God will always accept you when you return to him. You know, when you get right, when you're willing to surrender those sins, lay it down at the foot of the cross, and return to Christ, he will never turn you away. That's how beautiful he is. So this is a time in the nation of Israel where they had been in exile for a while, and now God was calling them back to the land. But the thing about it that's so cool is how God would use individuals, you know, just like you and me. You know, Elijah was a man with a nature like ours. He was just like us, but homeboy, he was able to close the heavens and say it's not going to rain for three years. So then, you know, when he prayed, it did rain. I mean, that's how much of a difference you can make. He was a man that was used by God to restore the nation of Israel to God. And so we learn these lessons. What God is calling us to is not just to return in some nominal fashion. What God is calling us to is to come back to him with everything that we are, you know, to lay it all down. And as we do, as you do, individuals here in this church and beyond these walls, then God will do a great work. And you can be a Nehemiah, or you can be an Esther, or you can be an Ezra, or a Zerubbabel, or Haggai, you know, one of those guys that were used in these time. And And so, you know, he, if you remember, we've gone through, he found out things were not cool in Jerusalem. He prayed, he fasted for four months. Then he went before the king. The king said, okay, it's all right for you to go back. You have my blessing. He goes back. It's about a two to three month journey from Persia to Jerusalem. And now he's back. And we pick it up here in verse 11, that he comes to Jerusalem. He's there for three days. He rises in the night. You know, one thing about leaders, they're usually awake when everyone else is sleeping. (laughs) So he rises in the night, and it says he took a few men with him, and he told no one what God had put in his heart to do at Jerusalem. You know, and there's so many lessons we're going to learn from tonight's study. You know, you guys know I have OCD, right? I mean, I try to organize things, and you can ask my wife, all the paper towel labels are all faced in the right direction, you know, stuff like that, right? And so anyways, um, this is one of those times, one of those Bible studies where I can't organize it all well. There's just a lot of different things for you to maybe write down or hopefully the Holy Spirit will bring to your remembrance. But one of the things we see about Nehemiah right off the bat is he wasn't in a hurry. I mean, he wasn't in a hurry. And we learned that from Nehemiah 
Just remember last time we, we said that when he found out things were not good, he didn't immediately leave. Um, he didn't jump to, you know, conclusions saying, you know, God's going to do this or that. No, he prayed for four months. I mean, seriously, is that how you face your challenges? Is that how you face your difficulties? You, you get on your face and you pray and you fast and you seek God with all your heart for four months? I would venture to say that a lot of us don't. Why? Because we live in a microwave society. I mean, here's Nehemiah after three days. He, he doesn't say anything, man, for three days. You know, and I think it's important to know um, there is sometimes there's an urgency, right? Every once in a while, you've got to take care of it right now. And, uh, you know, there's an urgency. Um, but, uh, but for the most part, we need to wait on the Lord. We need to wait on the Lord until we hear his marching orders, right? I mean, what I try to tell people is this. Stay in step with the Spirit. Don't lag behind him, but don't speed ahead of him. You know, Nehemiah wasn't one of those guys who was in a hurry. And, you know, uh, I, I think it's true. Have you guys ever heard that saying, haste makes waste? I mean, we're in a hurry for everything. How many of you guys are in a hurry when you drive? Just out of curiosity. You're passing people up and you're honking and you're cutting them off and you're, you know, some people. And I'm, it's like, why? Why are you always in a hurry? Why can't you just kick back and go on the slow lane for a while? You know, it's just uh, one of the ways that we are, and it messes things up. Proverbs 21.5 says, The plans of the diligent lead surely to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty surely to poverty. And so, you guys, as God calls you in life, as you're going to make big decisions, wait on the Lord. Make sure you hear from Him. Don't be hasty, because haste makes waste. Here we see when Nehemiah arrives in Jerusalem, he's just there waiting for a few days before he said anything to them. I mean, seriously, if you had come from Persia, you had all this entourage with you, and you arrived in Jerusalem, how many of you here would arrive with an announcement? Just to let you know as you're stepping off the carriage or whatever, I've been sent by Almighty God, commissioned by the king himself, Let's get started, you know? I think for all of us here, we would do it right away. But um, Nehemiah didn't do that. And so for us, it's important to know, I like what Warren Risby said, a good leader doesn't rush into his work, but patiently gathers the facts firsthand and then plans his strategy. How long did uh, Jesus wait before he got started? Anybody here know? 30 years. You're like, I could never wait 30 years. Well, look how effective his ministry was, right? I mean, how long did David wait? David waited 10 years. Joseph waited 13 years. Abraham waited 25 years. How long did Moses wait? 40 years after he first, you know, stepped out, said, I'm going to do it. But yeah, at the age of 80, he finally, Joshua had to wait 40 years. Caleb had to wait 40 years. Some of us here, we can't wait 40 minutes, Right? We need to learn to wait on the Lord. We need to have patience. There's a Dutch proverb. It says, a handful of patience is worth more, worth more than a bushel of brains. Amen. <laughs> and Augustine said, patience is the companion of wisdom. Remember that. You know, even in our words, I think, how many of you here regret something you said that you shouldn't have said? Have you ever do that? You're like, oh, I shouldn't have said that. But it came out. You already messed everything up. 
You already crushed somebody. You already just destroyed their spirit because you were quick to speak. It says, Nehemiah, he didn't say anything for three whole days. You should try that once. <laughs> Proverbs 29, 20, it says, Do you see a man hasty in his words? There is more hope for a fool than for him. And so here's Nehemiah. He's waiting on the Lord. And we read there in verse 12, it says, Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. You know, and it's not just random. The Bible says that, you know, a few men with him. You know, uh, again, just learning little things along the way. As a quick side note, I think it's helpful to see how Nehemiah had a few men with him. You know, and we need that. You know, we need that for so many reasons. We need accountability. We need help. We need friends. We need co-laborers in Christ. Whatever you do, you guys, don't go alone. You know, or do you have any friends? Do you have any brothers or sisters that you can take your heavy burdens to and know that they'll be there for you? You know, the Bible says if you're going to have friends, you've got to be friendly, right? Proverbs 18.1 says, A man who isolates himself seeks his own desire. He rages against all wise judgment. Don't isolate yourself. Don't be a lone ranger. Take at least one with you, right? This was the model of our master, the Lord Jesus Christ. We read in Mark 6, verse 7, that he called the twelve to himself and began to send them out two by two. He didn't send them out alone. And that you should never go alone. We should never go alone. We should have a few men with us. A few women with you, ladies. Later in Matthew 21.1, the Bible says, Now when they drew near Jerusalem and came to Bethphage at the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples, not just one. So, you know, we just learn little things. I, I like what Alan Redpath said. Nobody should ever go to the field for God or to any service for God alone. He must have those who will pray, who are with him in spirit at his side constantly. So here's Nehemiah. He gets there, doesn't say anything for a few days. And then at night, he rises up and he takes a few men with him. So we learn uh, to be patient and wait on the Lord. We learn not to go alone. And then thirdly, here's something important. How many of you here want God to use your life? I mean, I know you do. Here's what you got to wait for, though. You got to wait for him to put the mission in your heart. Right? Because that's what we read there in verse 12. Then I arose in the night, I and a few men with me. I told no one what my God had put in my heart to do at Jerusalem. You know, I mean, there's theology there. There really is. You know, there's ministry there. I mean, it's just a few words, but it, it, it says so much to us, right? I mean, I'm sure you would agree that there's no other way to do true ministry, right? You got to make sure that you are personally and intimately led by the Lord and that he puts it in your heart, you know, and it's just the way it works. Why? Because God has different places for you. Your calling is not the same as, as their calling. You know, Cambodia, you know, I talked to beautiful, beautiful, beautiful people and some of them say it's not in my heart. God didn't put it. It's, I just kind of don't have that that call praise god because they have other things to do but then i i see like someone like mercedes and she talked about the time that she first saw the video and in that day god put cambodia in her heart 
And she went a year later, and now she's, she's just crazy. She's a crazy Christian, man. God did such a beautiful work. It has to be something God puts in your heart, right? I mean, it's not just because there's a need, you guys, because there's a million needs out there, right? Which one do you meet? Well, if you try to meet all million of them, you're going to die, okay? And it can't be something God just put in your head. Well, I thought this one through, Manny, and I think that I should do this. No, you have to pray it through. And God has to put it in your heart. And that's what happened with Nehemiah, right? I mean, God put it in his heart. Anyone can do social work. doesn't mean it's ministry. Anyone can start a work. It doesn't mean it's ministry. It has to be from the Lord. It has to be put in your heart. It has to be birthed by God so that it can have life. And that's why it's so important that we pray and we ask God to put it there. So here's Nehemiah, just a million things to glean. And I'm not even touching on everything, but there's some things. And then we read in verse 13, And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well and the refuse gate and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and to the king's pool um, and there, there was no room for the animal under me to pass. And so I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall, and then I turned back and entered by the valley gate, and so returned. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. How many of you guys, when you were young, you snuck out of the house in the middle of the night? Just out of carry <laughs> I did too, okay, before I was a Christian, man, I remember, and one time I, I stole my, my aunt's car, you know, stuff like that, <laughs> you know, don't tell anybody, don't tell my aunt especially, but, you know, um, it's kind of like that, in the middle of the night, everyone else is sleeping, and Nehemiah just has it in his heart, you know, and I don't know, to me, I'm like, well, that's weird, in the middle of the night, they don't have flashlights, you know, I'm sure they had their little torches, you know, to kind of show things. But, you know, maybe he just, he just couldn't sleep, right? Sometimes God will do that to us. You can't sleep at night. You know, and I'm not saying it's because you're worried. It's because God wants you to pray. God wants to show you something. There's something about being awake when everyone else is asleep. You guys ever do that? You wake up in the middle of the night or you wake up early before everyone else and you go and you spend time with the Lord and then all of a sudden you sense the presence of God and he begins to show you things. Kind of like that. Um, Nehemiah rose, it was night, and and what does he do? He goes and he inspects the walls. Um, and, 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 And this is one thing that's important in the ministry is we need to do what's called a visual assessment. You know, the, and that word in the, in the Hebrew is also translated to, to examine something or to investigate something. And when you're going to do ministry, you can't just go in without examining, without investigating, without taking the time to see with eyes that are spiritual. You know, a good word of advice is to take some time to look over things, you know? I mean... Sometimes it's things that are done physical, and I, and I won't say that the things that are done physical, physically are less spiritual. 
You know, like when they did the, the, you know, the construction here in this room or in that room, to me, that's just as spiritual as, you know, the Bible studies that we do. Because I believe just like, you know, we're talking about rebuilding the walls and rebuilding the temple, it's the work of God, right? But usually it's not something you're going to see physically. Usually we're going to have to look with the eyes of our heart. It's going to be something that we're going to have to look at spiritually and honestly. And for some of us here, maybe the reason we are not ministering effectively is because we haven't looked at things honestly and spiritually. We've never woken up in the middle of the night. We've never sat down you know, at Jesus' feet long enough for him to really show us things the way they need to be seen. And so Nehemiah here, he's a great example for us. And you know, when we look at things from our own perspective, from our own view, it's going to get skewed. But when we look at things from God's perspective, you know, it's just, it's just so different than the way we would typically see things. I believe that when you pray, you'll see most clearly. And that's why you got to pray, you know? I mean, God will show us areas of dilapidation like he did with the walls and the gates. He will give us an accurate view of the situation and then we will have the confirmation of what he truly has called us to do. Part of the way that Nehemiah was effective and leading this construction of the walls to do in such a rapid period of time, 52 days, is because he stopped to assess the situation. And what did he see? When he looked at the walls, what did he see? Well, number one, he saw problems. But number two, he saw potential. Right? Sometimes we see neither. We don't see the problems. We got our head in the sand. Sometimes that's all we see, just problems. And we don't see the potential. Nehemiah was able to see in the dark better than the rest of the Jews could see in the light. Why? Because of the Holy Spirit, who was showing him things, right? I mean, Lord willing, next time we study through Nehemiah in chapter 3, uh, you guys are going to see all these lists of names and the different responsibilities. And we'll look at all the different gates. And you guys are going to see that all those gates, they had significance and they have meaning. And it's going to be a really cool study, right? But for tonight, we're just going to go through this. Uh, Nehemiah takes the tour. He starts on the west side. He goes down, up and around the east side, and then returns uh, by night from where he came. I think we have a couple of pictures here. Uh, do we, Henry? Ah, you guys probably can't see that too well. But um, you'll see this whole area here, prior to the exile, was where the walls were, all the way around. But then eventually, as time you know, transpired, the, the walls then were down the smaller city of David right here, and uh, that's what, what we see, Nehemiah, here we see they're rebuilt. That's what he would rebuild when he came back. And so the next picture should show um, some of the names of the gates. And so you'll see on the left side over here, the valley gate, that's where Nehemiah came out. He comes all the way down and around, uh, probably to the other side. Some say he went all the way up to the east gate. I don't think he went that high up. But he just, man, he just starts looking at the walls. We have one more picture here to kind of give you. We'll look at this more in depth next week at all the different gates of, uh, of Nehemiah's day. 
So the wall was broken down, all the, the, the bricks or whatever, um, and, and blocks, and all the gates which were made of wood were burned with fire. And so for the walls of a city to be you know, dilapidated like that meant that they had no protection, that they were vulnerable, and it was a shame. It was a shame to walk by that city. Supposedly, they're the city of God. Supposedly, that's Yahweh's city. And look at it. All the walls are broken down. So Nehemiah, who is so consumed with the glory of God, said, I want to go and I want to rebuild those walls. And so he goes, he low-key, he doesn't tell anyone, the officials, the priests, the nobles, the Jews, anyone, you know, what's going on. He's still praying. But then we read in verse 17 that he comes back and he communicates to them. And we don't know for sure. I have a feeling it was more than likely it was the next morning. But look at verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. And so now, you know, this is like, this is huge. This is huge. You know, Henry and I, we can, we can, we can kind of relate to this. It's not exactly the same. But like, you know, you got something big and you're excited about it, right? And then you tell the congregation, hey, anyone interested? Sign up after service, Right? And then what ends up happening, we look at the sheet and we're like, oh man, nobody signed up, man. You know, but it's cool when, when people catch the vision, come and let us rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. You know, they say that in most churches, uh, all the work is done by 10% of the people. That's a small percentage. Some churches, it's even less. You know, we're, we're blessed. I, I think we have, when, when I look at our ministry meetings, probably a little bit higher of a percentage, maybe more around 30%. But imagine, you guys, if 100% of the people caught the vision. You know, here Nehemiah comes and he extends the invitation. He says, you know the, the, the distress that we're in, we're the, the trouble that we're in, the problem that we have. And so I like what he says, let us, rebuild Jerusalem. Come and let us build the wall of Jerusalem. It wasn't just one man, right? He now incorporates everyone. And because, you know, at the end of the day, what can one man do? I mean, you know, maybe, and I don't know for sure, but maybe, you know, how many of you here, you just like to do it yourself, just out of curiosity? I take care of business. The reason why I don't like everyone else to get involved is because they always make mistakes, right? <laughs> But then what happens is you limit everything. You're limited to only what you can do. And you might be good, but you ain't that good, right? And so we need what everyone can do. And so eventually Nehemiah would just actually uh, recruit 42 different groups of people to rebuild the wall. And you know, that, that's so cool when people catch the vision. Every once in a while, we'll have an event here. We have to take down all the chairs and put tables up. And you know, there have been a couple of times where just a few guys had to do it, and it took forever. But then it's so cool when, like, after a meeting, everybody gets involved, and then we knock it off like that. You know, that's what can happen if everybody gets involved. 
You know, um, that the church is a body with many members. They're all different, but united. And that's what Nehemiah is trying to encourage the people in today. You know, for us, we got to be united. We got to get together. We got to, you know, pray. We got to serve. And if we do, then together, man, who knows what we can do in the city of Elmani, in the surrounding areas, and to the ends of the earth, right? There's a a saying by S.D. Gordon. He said, a united church would be an inconquerable church. But the moment cooperation is sacrificed as an essential, real power begins to disappear. You know, I, I like the fact that Nehemiah was a great leader, but leadership alone can't accomplish things. You need partnership, right? You need leadership and you need partnership. Leaders cannot do the job by themselves and workers cannot accomplish anything great without some sort of leadership. And so he tells them, let's rebuild the walls. Why? Because it's a shame. It's a shame. And I'll be honest with you, sometimes we look at the church and the way that, you know, the way the church is seen in the world. Be honest, how do they, how do they see Christians? A lot of times they see us um, maybe as hypocritical, Right? And there have been the hypocrites. So what do we need to do? We need to do our best to try to rectify that. Um, they, they don't see the power of God a lot of times in the church because even we're not seeing the power of God. I mean, don't get me wrong. God's doing a good work, but it's not the great work that he wants to do. You know, there were guys living in Jerusalem at that day You know, and they thought it was cool. We're back in the land. Praise God for that. But they were content in living in a condition that was not to the fullest that God wanted for them. And we, you and I, we eventually, we have to come to that crossroads. We have to make that decision. Am I content with kind of like, you know, 75% blessing, 50% blessing? Or do you want all of God? Do you want all? so that we can live a life that would bring God glory. And that's where Nehemiah was. And he said, it's a shame. This is a reproach. Let's take it away, right? I mean, he tells them about God's hand of approval upon them, which is so important, and even the king's approval, right? And so very important to know that God is in us. And this is so cool, the way the people responded. And so they said, Let us rise up and build, in verse 18. And then they set their hands to this good work. Isn't that cool? I mean, the sheet got filled up, man. (laughs) Nehemiah invited the people to get involved, to rise up and work for the glory of God and the good of his people. And what a blessing that they responded, right? It says they set their hands to this good work. Later, we're going to see that they were able to finish this thing in a swift fashion. And even just halfway along, they made a note that the people had a mind to work. To work. No, no, I don't want to work, man. I, I work at work, you know. <laughs> and God says, no, I, I, you know, we got we to gotta sacrifice. We have to, you know, it's going to be inconvenient at times. But, you know, in order to really build a wall for protection and build a a wall for the glory of God, 
We're going to have to make those sacrifices. We're going to have to work. We're going to have to, you know, and it's, it's, it's funny, you know, I, I would prefer vacuuming and cleaning toilets and stuff like that. I love that. I don't know how many of you here are like that. You guys like to clean? Anybody here? I like that. And, you know, praise God for that part of the body. But um, there's also another part of the body that we need to pray hard. Hard. Some people, they will, they will never fast. They won't skip a meal. You know, and I don't know why. Well, I like hot Cheetos. I mean, I don't, I don't get it. I'm like, man, you won't skip one meal a week? You know, or maybe two? I mean, why? You know, and there's different ways of fasting. I think primarily when you read the Bible, it's talking about not eating food, but maybe you can just say to your family one day, no TV today or no TV tonight. Now, what are we going to do? I don't know. I think you can probably think of something, you know? I mean, I remember one time we had what was called even an ele- no electricity night. No electricity. Do that one night in a hot night. Do that one night. <laughs> and you light the candles and you play a game and it's fun. And then what you do is if anybody accidentally flips on a light switch, you make them do 20 push-ups right there, man. <laughs> But I don't know. I mean, I just really think in all reality, not to offend anyone, I'm just going to say this really nice, that we can get lazy in our prayer life. So what I want to encourage you guys to do is just to know that that's probably the one thing the devil doesn't want you to do more than anything else. And so that means it's probably the one thing you and I should, should do the most. Don't ever give up on your prayer life. Don't ever give up on that. Here we had, you know, these people, they rise up and to be, you know, part of the work. Uh, and it's kind of cool how they set their hands to this work. You know, one translation says they readied themselves and another said they began the good work. So they readied themselves. What does that mean? Well, they began the good work. What does that mean? Well, what it really means is that they were preparing themselves now. I don't think they were putting the blocks on yet. I don't think they were putting the gates on yet. They were getting themselves ready, which in all reality is part of the work. You know, as you begin, you know, God's calling you to do this, and you prepare yourself, and you prepare your heart, and you strengthen your hands, and then God is able to do a great work. And so, as they rise up, Nehemiah extends the invitation Everything went smooth from that point forward, right? They live happily ever after, right? Wrong. <laughs> Look at verse 19. But when Sanballat, the Horonite, Tobiah, the Ammonite official, and Geshem, the Arab, heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing that you are doing? Will you rebel against the king? Oh, man, these guys, we're going to see that as we go through the book of Nehemiah, that they are there time and time and time again to oppose the work, right? Um, and these guys are important guys in Samaria. Um, some believe Sambalat to be the, the leader of the army and Tobiah to be a, a lead man in the inner courts of the temple, having some links there with the family so it would be like someone important, not just some insignificant person that nobody knows, no, somebody kind of important rising up against you. And so, 
you know, Nehemiah, he has to deal with this. You know, one of the things that we got to understand is that the enemy won't just sit back and let us do the work of God. You know, we read earlier in, in, in this chapter that, that they were upset because someone had come and, and was after the well-being of the people. You know, you got a lot, of, a lot of people, and they're just here, wow, start a church, you get a whole bunch of people, maybe we can raise some money, you know, um, whatever. You do a ministry, and we can have fun, and, you know, for their own glory. There's a lot of that going on, but, you know, what about people who really care about people? Like Paul the Apostle, he said, you know, Timothy, I like Timothy, because he's kind of like me. We really care about the people. When you really care about the people, the enemy is going to fight you furiously. And that's what ended up happening. Alan Redpath said they knew perfectly well what Nehemiah was after. He was concerned about the welfare of the children of Israel. He was a man with no other motive than that. He had no axe to grind, no selfish interests, no vain ambitions, no desire for personal glory. Therefore, he was a marked man. And as soon as such a man says, let us arise and build, the enemy says, let us arise and oppose, right? And that's, that's what we see in the book of Nehemiah. We're going to see it time and time again. We saw in verse 10 that these guys were deeply disturbed. And so what did they do? They laughed at them and they belittled them. They said, you want to get involved in ministry? You want to start something? It will never make us the slightest difference in the world, right? And that's the approach of the adversary. He wants to discourage us in the work, um, uh, to mock us and belittle us. I like what Warren Wiersbe said. He said, they started off with ridicule, a device somebody has called the weapon of those who have no other. You know, you're, you're, I don't know if you guys have ever heard that from some of your family members, you know, like, oh, you're all into church now, you're all into God now, oh, it's just a phase you're going through, or they might laugh at you and call you a Jesus freak, because you're, you know, not only do you go on Sundays, but you go on Thursdays, you know, and sometimes you come on these other events, and then you get involved in ministry, and then, you know, they can't even, they can't even begin to believe that you would be so crazy as to give maybe 10% of your you know, income to the Lord because you're acknowledging the fact that it all belongs to Him. I mean, they, you know, they just, they'll just mock us. They'll, they'll despise us, right? And, and so you know, right here, uh, they start off with ridicule. Um, to despise means that you think it's little. It means that you think it's nothing. I remember one time a person, they don't come to this church anymore, so don't try to figure it out, right? But um, they, they uh, you know, they wanted to get involved in ministry. And, uh, and so we'd always tell the guys, a lot of times we'll tell the guys, hey, you know, why not maybe become an usher, man? Because when you become an usher, you kind of learn to be a servant, right? And I remember this guy, he told me, he said, I know what, I've already done that. I was head of the ushers in my old church. Uh, that's that's like too little, and right away I was like, man, I don't hope he doesn't sign up for our ushers ministry, you know? Because, I mean, an usher too little? Oh my gosh! Do you ushers know how awesome you are in this church? 
that in many ways you're the face of this church, that in many ways it's your love and your welcome to the people and your service and sometimes your protection. Who knows, maybe one day you're going to have to, you know, beat somebody up. I don't know, just different things happen, man. Not beat them up, but restrain them, okay? I mean, I mean there's, to me, being an usher is awesome. But the enemy will come in and, oh, that's all you do is, you know, you PowerPoint, you know, you click the computer, you know, to change the screen. Yeah, God uses you to help us worship the Lord. There's nothing, there's nothing to laugh about. There's nothing too small. I mean, there's nothing too, too big. It's just amazing to me how the enemy will come in and say that you're insignificant and you're not making a difference when in all reality... You know, it's a total lie. We need to be so careful, you guys, because sometimes the enemy convinces us that what we're doing is not significant and has no potential whatsoever to impact the kingdom. And so uh, I want to encourage you guys, don't listen to him. You know, the enemy will despise us. The enemy will accuse us. Right here he said, hey, you guys are rebelling against the king. What's he trying to do at that point? Strike fear into their hearts because Nehemiah knew if that got back to the king, somehow he might even have a place where his life would be in jeopardy. And so when all this went down, what did Nehemiah do in verse 20? So I answered them and said to them, the God of heaven himself will prosper us. Therefore, we, his servants, will arise and build, but you get out of town. That, that's what he says, basically. <laughs> you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. What did Nehemiah do? Well, he brought God into the equation. You know, here these guys are coming in and they're opposing them and they're and despising them, accusing them. And right away, I love it, the first thing Nehemiah says is God himself will prosper us. And not just a powerful God, but a personal God. I want you to know who you're fighting against. You start coming against me, you start talking smack about me, you do whatever you want to try to take me down. And here I am, what am I? I'm a servant of God, Nehemiah says. That's who we are. You come against me, you're coming against God. Because what does the Bible say? If God is for us, then who can be against us? And that's not just for pastors or leaders. That's for all of you. That's for God's people. You're the apple of his eye. And so you need to know and you need to stand on this promise of Nehemiah. Hey, God himself will prosper us. And I'm not saying that you're going to get a Hummer or anything. I'm not saying that you're going to you know, be healthy and wealthy and prosperous in, in the physical realm. But in the spiritual realm, you just don't let the enemy strike fear or discouragement, that double-edged sword of doubt. and Don't let him slice you up with that. You, know, you just stay in faith. No, God is with me. God has called me. I'm not worthy. I'm not able. But God is with me. And so what does he say? He says, number one, God's going to prosper me. Number two, I'm a servant of God. And number three, get out of here. You have no part nor portion in this. And you know what we see right there? We see a strong leader. A strong leader. That's who Nehemiah is. And the enemy comes. And what does he do? He says these things and he throws bricks at him. And what does Nehemiah do? Nehemiah is able to build even with those bricks. One last slide. I think we have it here. 
Oh, at least I hope we do. Have you guys ever heard this saying? A successful man is one who can lay a firm foundation with the bricks others have thrown at him. How many times have they talked smack about you? How many times someone said something to you because that's the way of the devil. That's the dialect of the devil. That's the language of Lucifer. He wants to crush your spirit. He wants to take you down by saying things about you that are not of the Lord. I'll never forget, man, when I was growing up and I heard it over and over and over again, you'll never be a man. You'll never amount to anything. You're going to be just like your father, a heroin addict. And that, that went into my heart. But when I got saved, the Lord took those things, they're still echoing in my ears, and he built something with it. And maybe you heard something in your life, and some people, someone said they never, they never believed in you, they never gave you a chance, and you'll never amount to anything, they said. And then the Lord, he steps in, and like Nehemiah, he assesses the problem. Yeah, there are some issues here, there's a problem, but I also see the potential. And God can take any life, no matter what they've done, no matter how bad it's been, and he can do anything with that life when it's surrendered to him. You see? And I just pray that we would believe that truth about God. It's not about us, it's about him. It's not because we're all that, it's just that what we do, like Nehemiah, is, is we say, here am I, Lord, send me. I give you my life. Lord, I must confess the fact that I've been living in this world and it's, you know, they, they're trying to take me away from you and I'm so distracted and content even though the walls are all halfway broken down. And Lord, but I want to just get right. I want to I wanna give you everything that I am. And when you do that, you watch what God will do. You know, part of the reason that I'm even involved in the ministry is because my pastor would always tell me, God wants to use your life. God wants to use your life. And I guess I heard it over and over and over again until finally I believed him. And God, he doesn't want to just use our life. He doesn't want to just work through us. He wants to work in us. Because the making of a minister is the making of a man. And that's what God wants to do. And he's here tonight. He's here to meet us. He's here to speak to us. He's here to encourage us. One thing I want to tell you is this, that there is no sin that the blood of Jesus cannot wash away. You know, Paul, it's interesting, they made fun of him when he was in Athens, they said, oh, he's a babbler. Or when he was talking before Festus, Festus says, ooh, I think this guy's a little crazy, you know? <laughs> he's been studying too much. I mean, even the apostles, when they were talking in tongues on the day of Pentecost, what did everybody say? They mocked them, despised them. Oh, they're just drunk. Despised, right? And then there's our Lord, Isaiah 53, verse 3. Despised and rejected by men. As he hung on the cross, what did they do? They mocked him. But what, if, what was he doing? He was dying for our sins. And let me tell you something, man. You get the blood of Jesus is strong. 
to wash away our sins and to give us a new start in life. And so tonight, as we close in communion, I just want to encourage you guys to know that and uh, just pray uh, that as we partake of communion, um, that you would see beyond Nehemiah, um, beyond even the, the lessons on leadership, and that you, that we would see to the, the God of Nehemiah, to the leader of leaders, to the chief shepherd, the good shepherd, the great shepherd, that, that tonight we would lift our eyes and that we would really fix our eyes on Jesus.